Hi, this is Mike Lacona. I've had the privilege of being on the Deeper Waters podcast with Nick Peters several times over the past few years. Nick is one of the finest interviewers on the internet today. He's well-read and asks the type of questions that bring valuable insights for his listeners. So if you want to get great information from top-notch scholars in a concise package, the Deeper Waters podcast with Nick Peters is where you need to be. You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today is no exception. We, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus here, which is something we talk about for Easter time. Now, if you're some of my Orthodox friends, such as my wife looking into Eastern Orthodoxy, you're getting ready to celebrate Easter. Protestants and Catholics, we celebrated it last week. And so, in our house, I like to say we are getting ready for Second Easter, right now. But did it happen? That's the main question that we need to discuss. And to do that, I've brought on someone who's written a book about this. His name is Per Ewert. In 2008, he was one of the founders of the Clapham Institute, which has since been taken the role as Sweden's leading Christian think tank. The Institute finds its historical vision in the London suburb Clapham and William Wilberforce and the rest of the original Clapham group who worked consistently to reform British society according to biblical truths and values. Per Ewart has served as a director of the Clapham Institute since 2016. More information in English about the Institute, their website. Being the author of five books, plus co-authoring and editing several others, Per Ewart has been active in Christian apologetics and the discussion of religion in present-day society since 2007, when his first book was released. Sherlock, The Case of the Empty Tomb, the book we're talking about today, is its first book in English. Pro Ewart is also an editorial writer of the Christian daily, Raiden Idag, The World Today, and he is currently working on his PhD thesis on the historical roots of Swedish secularization. He lives in southern Sweden with his wife and four children. So, Per, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. Now, if my audience doesn't know... Uh, um, who you are and such. Tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Yeah, I, I was born in 1973, to take it from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. I uh, studied to become a teacher for, for uh, junior high school and high school, and I've been working with that since, well, the late 90s. And uh, in the beginning of the new millennium, I began write, writing, and I actually began writing school books at first, wrote one in uh, social science and one in religious education. And based on that, I wrote my first apologetic books, or book, uh, called uh, 
Who Lights the Stars in Sweden. That's a, a famous Swedish song. Uh, and it deals with the, the large questions in life and how the different worldviews answer them. And that ends up in a defense of the biblical worldview. And after that, I've continued to write uh, as a journalist and uh, as an author and lecturing and debating in different uh, circumstances. Uh, I've also began working more as a scholar, as a historian, and uh, began working with my doctoral thesis on the uh, historical sources behind Swedish secularization and individualism. And I've been doing that the last three years, along with the directorship at the Clapham Institute. I, I've been along in the group since it began in 2008. And uh, three years ago, I was asked to step in as director, and I've been doing that ever since. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of curious, since you are in Sweden, we often hear a lot about Sweden being this atheistic paradise or this socialist safe haven and things like that. What is it really like in Sweden? Well, according to the socialism, uh, the, the former party leader of the Christian Democrats, he sometimes says that every Swede has a social democrat sitting behind his left ear, because we have been very much permeated with the social democratic uh, ideology. They ruled Sweden for 44 years between 1932 and 1976, and they got the chance to change a lot of Swedish society in several ways during that period, and that has very much affected our nation. It has. Uh, I wouldn't consider us to be an extremely atheistic nation, but rather a very secular uh, nation where a lot of people would consider themselves agnostics or I believe in God in my own way and something like that. Uh, but in values, we are tremendously individualistic and uh, secular. And a lot of the reason it depends on the social democrats. Is it the kind of paradise, though, that we've been told about? Or what's it like for yeah, if you like, uh, loneliness, because that is uh, a bit of the result of uh, individualism being being pursued as far as it has in Sweden. It actually uh, came, there came a documentary a, a few years ago called The Swedish Theory of Love, which explains how, how everything has to begin from the independence of the individual. And from there on, we have created a society where people have become came become more alienated from each other and mm -hmm. actually quite very lonely. Mm -hmm. Now, let's get to the main thing here. Um, I've always liked mysteries. I've uh, got them. Um, I've read Hardy Boys books growing up as an elementary schooler and middle schooler at the library. When I got done reading all those, I switched over and started reading Nancy Drew. My mother read Mary Higgins Clark, and to this day, as soon as... I get a new one and get it read before she does. I'm always calling her and teasing her, giving her a hard time about reading it, it first and such. And I absolutely loved the series Monk when it was on television. Read all the books from it. And my wife and I watched Elementary for a few years. And, of course, I've read the G.K. Chesterton Father Brown mysteries. I'm guessing you've been a mystery buff yourself as well. Yeah, uh, I, I've tried uh, a few other detective uh, characters and detective stories. I've never been that much of a fan of, of other figures uh, who, are, who tend to be 
a bit more violent uh, for, for my taste uh, and not that intellectually sharp as Sherlock Holmes has been. So, so Sherlock Holmes has been my absolute literary favorite since I was a teenager. I read the complete works of, of uh, Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes several times and, and uh, I, I know the stories quite well. So that, therefore it became so interesting to write a home story on my own. Yeah. What is it you like about mysteries exactly? Well, mysteries that are possible to solve. That, mm. that, that is the interesting part. You may always run into different mysteries that, that are unable, impossible to solve. Uh, and that's not really that interesting to, to follow the, the line of evidence. But mysteries that are actually possible to solve. That's what's so interesting and what I like about the Conan Doyle Sherlock Holmes stories. They, they seem almost unsolvable to, from the beginning, but uh, Sherlock Holmes knows where to begin, where to begin the search and, and gathering of evidence. And then finally he comes up with a solution that seems incomprehensible uh, at first to, to the outside viewer, but he gives such a, a wonderful explanation that it becomes so so intellectually satisfactorily uh, and that's what i like about the sherlock character mm -hmm. and doesn't he have some sort of saying like when you have uh, exhausted all the possible options whatever remains must be the truth no matter how impossible it is yeah, yeah, or rather, uh, he says something like, I, I think it's first from the sign of four, when you have exp excluded all impossible explanations and okay. you only have one remaining, it still has to be the truth, no matter how improbable you might uh, find it. Yes. Yeah, because improbable is not the same thing as impossible. You, you exclude what's impossible and then you have... And, and it doesn't matter if you like it, if you find it uh, fancy in some way. Uh, if it's possible, uh, it has to be the truth. And mm -hmm. that's what's so interesting when he has to carry this investigation about the empty tomb. Mm -hmm. now, I think part of this would also mean miracles are a big issue here, because those are usually seen as impossible. Would you mm -hmm. agree with that? That all depends on what basic worldview you have. If you have decided that the universe has to be a closed system of only cause and effect, then miracles in the sense that we understand it uh, have to be excluded. But the, ma the main question is, is it possible that uh, a god exists with the ability to intervene in history? I actually had a debate uh, on the resurrection uh, a year ago with a uh, well-known atheist in Sweden where I presented the historical evidence uh, that, that all people should agree on concerning the death, burial and resurrection uh, of Jesus. And I also added that I want to argue that it's possible that this God exists. Uh, and if he, if he wished to reject that, the, he had to explain why it was impossible. But he never stated that. He said that, yeah, sure, I can give you that it's possible. And then miracles become possible. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, let's uh, get into the book here some. You have it set in modern times. Why is yeah. that? Well, I, I first thought about putting it in a Victorian age. I actually got the idea 
uh, for this book when I read a newspaper article about a priest who uh, dressed up in a Sherlock Holmes costume before delivering a sermon. And I, I read that actually one morning before we went to a well, should we say an adventure house mm. with with a family where you walk into small rooms and you solve problems. I don't know if you have that in America. I think we call them escape rooms. Oh, right. Here. Uh, but you go go into these rooms and you try to solve problems and then you go out again. And uh, come, to, come to think of it right now, that, that, that sort of fits with, <laughs> with the Sherlock Holmes story as well. But on the way there, uh, we had something like 50 kilometers to drive to that place. And driving there, I, I came up with a bit of this story. Then we solved problems during the day and then we went back uh, home again. And on the way home, I came up with more or less <laughs> the rest of the story. Uh, and I decided to put it in present age, present time, because I wanted to include uh, the latest scholarship on these historical uh, matters. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I think you present the scholarship in a right way. You don't have Sherlock Holmes saying, where so-and-so says this and so-and-so says that. Mm. And such. At least I don't remember that going on. Instead, he just talks about going to a library and reading the best scholars, and then you get footnotes for that. Yeah. So the scholarship concerning these historical events have actually gone forward a lot uh, and especially in our direction, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, the scholarly consensus is more s stronger when it comes to the experiences from the disciples, the, the closeness in time to the events and so mm -hmm. on. So, so current scholarship actually strengthens the case, uh, the Christian case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I know Gary Habermas has uh, personally told me several times that there are things that scholars that are skeptical can see today about the historical Jesus and resurrection that they yeah. never would have conceded 50 years ago. Exactly. And I'm, I'm very grateful that uh, Gary Habermas has actually written the foreword to this book as well. Mm -hmm. I met him some five years ago when he was on a lecture tour in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And I, I worked as his interpreter at, at a couple of lectures. And we've kept contact ever since. And he's become a good friend and uh, a role model for me as well as an apologist. So I'm very glad that he took the time to write the foreword to this book. Yeah, Gary Habermas and I have known each other <clears throat> for several years. <clears throat> I actually owe him a great deal of debt, really, because he's been a whole lot more than just an apologetics mentor to me. Gary Habermas was actually the person who introduced me to my wife. Oh, <clears throat> fantastic. <clears throat> well, it goes a bit further than that. He was also the one who married us. <laughs> well, great to hear. Yeah, when sometime when we were driving together, I think I'd just taken an hour to meet my parents, and I was driving her back home to Atlanta then. And she said, you know, if we ever get married someday, I think Gary should marry us, and he's the one who brought us together. I said, okay. <laughs> and that's what happened. So, yeah, Gary Habermas is not only a great apologist, he's also a skilled matchmaker. <laughs> So wonderful to hear. I also suspect one of the benefits of having this set in modern times was you could actually go and do research on the internet for the Sherlock Holmes character so that he could go and look up all of this information as much as he could 
and yeah. learn that way. Mm. Uh, I also got the chance when I wrote this book to to do some what we call a Holmesian deduction. It's mm. usually called mm. a, a method that Conan Doyle used in a lot of stories. Mm. How how Sherlock Holmes tells hidden things, hidden, hidden information about his visitors, which mm. astonishes them and creates this, this feeling that he's so intellectually brilliant. Mm. And I get the chance to do that in this book as well. When he meets a visitor, or a visitor uh, pays a visit uh, upon him, and uh, in a few seconds, Sherlock is able to tell not just one, but both his occupation. And I get to do the same thing when John has bought a used car and uh, Sherlock is able to give the details about the car and his previous owner and his girlfriends. And that was very fun to write, actually. Yeah. How, how much research did you need to do to do those things? Because I, I can imagine it must be kind of difficult to come up with your own mysteries. Yeah, uh, I, I spent quite a lot of time doing doing research, both in the historical sources. I've written about the resurrection and, and the, the historical case for it before in, in other areas. But I also had to do some research on the details that Sherlock r- reveals about people to, to get things uh, right. Yeah. Uh, so I studied a lot of London local geography. What would happen if you turn left on that corner? Where, uh, what uh, flowers would bloom at, at that time of the spring, and so on and so forth? Mm-hmm. So it was a fun book to read. To write, mm-hmm. now, of course, I'm thinking Sherlock Holmes on the internet would probably be a whole lot more diligent than a lot of the uh, internet scholars that mm-hmm. one encounters on places like Facebook and such today. Mm-hmm. I take it you yeah. know what I'm talking about with that. Uh, if you elaborate a bit. Uh, people who think that they know everything because they can do a Google search. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, well, you have to go a little bit deeper than that. And, and that's what I get the, the chance to let Sherlock do in this story, to really go to the primary sources. Uh, and the fantastic thing uh, about this is that we actually have access to the primary sources. We can read them in, in the New Testament, uh, which is not the case, I can tell you, with, with most ancient uh, events. We, we have to go to archives or rely on other scholars. Here we can go to the sources themselves, and that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Let's uh, start asking some about since they go to the sources. Is it really possible for us to investigate a claim like this that's 2,000 years old? Yeah. If you consider history to be a scientific discipline, uh, I read a, a newspaper article in Sweden a, a couple of years ago where they interviewed a, a local pastor who was having a kind of Easter conference. And then I got the impression during that interview that he felt somewhat uncomfortable b- before the secular journalist. And he said something like, well, this isn't science, you know, uh, saying thereby in some way that, well, let's have our faith. If you don't believe in it, if it doesn't sound rational, never mind that. Let us keep it to to our faith. But that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is mm-hmm. a worldview and a faith that is based on historical facts. If Christ is risen, then Christianity is true. If Christ is not risen, Christianity is false. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have the ability and the possibility to, to investigate this in historical sources. Mm. Yeah, I I have a huge problem with churches that don't seem to do anything about 
the data that we have for resurrection and just treat it like it doesn't exist. I'm very happy at the Protestant Church. My wife and I attend together. They are incredibly open to this kind of thing. When I did my debate last month against Dan Barker at the University of North Georgia Gainesville, several mm-hmm. people from the church showed up to kind of be a little cheering squad for yeah. me, and I've been referred to as the church apologist. get to teach some classes sometimes, so many other things, and I, that's sadly the rarity in churches today. Most mm-hmm. of them just do give, if they give any answers, very usual pat answers, when we just told, where well, you have to have faith instead. Yeah. That, sorry, that's not going to be convincing to an unbelieving world. No, it wouldn't be convincing to, to us as Christians either, because if we mm. only have faith and there is no foundations carrying the faith, it's useless, as Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not risen, our faith is useless. And I actually read an interview in the New York Times uh, a couple of days ago. I found the name here. There was a Protestant minister uh, called Serene Jones. She's also a president of the Union Theological Seminary, uh, who all the way through this interview she, she avoids the questions of truth. Well, what about the virgin birth? Well, that, that, that sounds more or less bizarre, she says. What about the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus? Well, you don't have to believe that to, to, become, to be a Christian. Well, that's a bizarre, I would say, bizarre view of mm-hmm. truth and faith. Uh, that, that worldview, it is a postmodern worldview that, that avoids truth altogether. And people can't build their lives on, uh, on such a worldview. Yeah, I mean, I definitely affirm the virgin birth. But mm. The fact that you can say you don't need to believe in the resurrection of Jesus to be a Christian, that's totally nonsensical to me. Yeah, uh, non- <laughs> it's absolutely, that, that's a word, it's nonsense. It it's, doesn't give any sense at all. Why should you believe in Jesus? What? Why would Jesus be important in any sense mm-hmm. if he wasn't resurrected from the dead? Mm-hmm. He would be a false prophet. Nobody w- would uh, ha- follow him. Yeah, it seems like people are talking about being a follower of Jesus. It pretty much just mean liking his teachings and things like that and such, and I suppose to an extent it's fine. I mean, if you're going to pick a teacher to follow, mm-hmm. better his teachings than a lot of others, but that wasn't his main claim. I mean, I guess that's kind of like C.S. Lewis's trilemma there. Yeah. And, uh, of course, his teaching and his personality that we can read about in the Gospels, they give indications to who, who he was uh, and gives sort of clues that, that he was actually the Son of God. But... If he died and did not rise again, uh, everything is futile. And that's so interesting when I use the Sherlock Holmes character. He doesn't care about religion. He doesn't care about piety and so on. He's he's dedicated to facts and the truth. And that's why I think he's such a good guide in a story and a mystery-solving process such as this. I... I haven't really read Sherlock Holmes that much, and I, mean, I know he's a creation of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm. Uh, was, do you know the worldview of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and what in addition would, be, would have been the worldview of Sherlock Holmes and the stories? Uh, yeah, he, the worldview of Sir Arthur was a bit bizarre. At the end of his life, he, he turned to s- spiritism. 
uh, where he he had mediums where he contacted the other side and and mm. communicated with the, with the dead, and he spent a lot of his time and money to support spiritism, and I think a lot of his heritage went to those as well. Uh, so <laughs> I don't agree with the philosophy of spiritism, but but uh, I can assure you that he was open to the fact that uh, there is more to life than than what we find only in the natural realm. Yeah. Was he involved in something like, say, Theosophy, for instance, or anything like that? Uh, I'm not sure if he mixed in those circles, but but he he was a very devoted fan to spiritism. He was actually in in Stockholm, Sweden, I think it was a year or so before his death, and and he made a, a public lecture, not about Sherlock Holmes, which people wanted to hear, but about spiritism. Mm-hmm. So, how does Sherlock Holmes get involved in this great mystery in the story without spoiling too much? Yeah, uh, the the idea that I, I wish to build upon was to give Sherlock a certain amount of time to, to deal with this mystery. Now, the story begins on Ash Wednesday, when he's sitting at home in Baker Street, uh, frustrated being out of work. <laughs> And uh, home comes John. I, I call him by the first name in a modern time. And he has met a couple of people uh, on town with ash crosses on the foreheads. And Sherlock knows the sign. He's very familiar with different kinds of signs. And he says that it has something to do with Ash Wednesday. I know that. Uh, but John sort of asks him briefly about the Easter and the content of that and he's not very interested in that because he figures it to be a religious holiday and he's not interested in religion. Mm. Uh, but then John says, thinking aloud, more or less, that it would have been a case for a good Roman investigator. Dead body, buried, and then, boom, three days later, gone from the tomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Sherlock gets all of a sudden the idea, well, what if I take this case? Yeah, I'll give it 40 days from now till Easter. And if I haven't sold it, then I'll drop it forever, not mention it again. Mm-hmm. I think the maid also played a part, didn't, didn't she? Well, they have a landlady called called uh, Mrs. Hudson, and she intervenes mm-hmm. A few times in the story, she she doesn't have a carrying part here. Uh, I, I borrow the usual prime mm. suspect, so to mm. speak, in the Sherlock Holmes stories: Inspector Lestrade and a few others. Because mm. let's start looking at the case or something. And something else I should point out before any event is, you do rely on the work of the best scholars, but the book isn't just heavily populated with footnotes and such. It's really a very easy book to read. Yeah, yeah. I, I sort of tried to make it a book with that you could read on two levels, either mm-hmm. as an adventure book, a detective story of a, an old case and a new modern case, and also uh, as a way to follow the current scholarly research on the resurrection. Mm-hmm. So, let's start at the very beginning, as Shark does. Now, one place that he didn't start, and that's with even the existence of Jesus, because I know in the Academy, this is a closed subject, hardly anyone takes the idea that Jesus never even existed seriously, but for a lot of people listening to this show and such, they can name several people they've encountered who take that position. Yeah, especially on the if you read internet uh, 
people mm. who, who spread their ideas widely there. But if you ask current scholarship, it's not a, a matter on the table. It's not up for debate. Jesus mm. is obviously a historical person. We mm. have more uh, information and sources about him and closer in time than, than most famous people from the antiquity. So, so Jesus is beyond doubt a historical person. The question mm. is what happened to him. So you just de- so then you decided to really just move past that one rather than have Sherlock Holmes waste time yeah. on it. As but it but were. it's a fact that he has to double check with this, this extra character that I put into the story, the the priest who who is also a New Testament scholar, so mm-hmm. he can assure Sherlock that Jesus is an actual historical f- figure. Yeah, the introduction of a priest was actually one of my favorite parts. Of the the book, since you had a uh, the whole thing with a uh, Sherlock Holmes deduction with figuring out all these things about the priest beforehand yeah. and such, it's it's kind of like the whole this whole thing I see in an episode of say Monk where he gets involved in this little case yeah. and goes on from there, and, and the way he just solves these tiny little things is just so brilliant. Yeah, that that was fun to write, mm-hmm. and I also wish to to ex- include an extra mystery and, and problem during the book. It would have been a bit dull to have Sherlock and John sitting in two armchairs across each other and, and talking for twenty four chapters. Mm-hmm. So, so these two mysteries. He he uh, visits Sherlock because he has had a, a medieval silver cross stolen or disappeared mysteriously mm. from his yeah. church wall. So they follow each other through these two problems through the rest of the book. Mm. Um, so, so he has good academic competence to rely on when he wishes to investigate the historical happenings. Yeah, I agree. That probably would have been pretty boring just have the two characters seen together. Oh, you did have them doing research, and sometimes Holmes would take... Uh, steps outside of regular research in looking into the claims involved. I don't want to get too far into those yet, but they certainly do happen. Yeah, and he, he's uh, dedicated in f- figuring out not just what you can read in an ancient book, but also what what happens to the body, what happens to the mind when you're put in, in very serious and problematic situations that reflect mm. the things that happened during these days on this Passover some 2,000 years ago. Yeah, and one of the things also about why Holmes does this despite what some Christians might think, that Holmes doesn't go on this case because, you know, life just seems so meaningless and he wants to mm-hmm. find something special in his life. He's kind of like, say, Dr. House on the show House, where he's, he's interested in it because it's an anomaly, it's a curiosity. He's not yes. doing it for any uh, personal, trying to find meaning in life or anything like that. Mm. And, and those questions are obviously they're, they're important. Yeah. The, the question of meaning of life, but different people have different uh, entrances to the big mm. questions and to the questions about God and and the Bible and the reliability of the Christian faith. And Sherlock's yeah. entrance is through facts. He's so dedicated to facts that what I that's what I let him him talk to to John about when John strays off with different hypotheses and Sherlock ha- has to say that we're not into the hypothesis yet. We have to gather all the facts. Then we can start, in, uh, start to evaluate different alternatives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my sayings is that 
Jumping to conclusions is really not nearly as good as exercise as digging for facts is. Yes, very good. And that does seem to be something that too many people do today, where they just try and go immediately and reach mm. some massive conclusion suddenly before going and doing a lot of the hard research. Or they'll just read one thing on the internet and say, hey, that agrees with me, and not bother to do any research on it. Yeah, or if you just say, uh, well, what if this uh, had been the case? Then we don't have to accept Christianity or any Mm. other truth claim, Mm. uh, because you can rest on what if. Mm. And I actually uh, had a, I don't know if I mentioned that, I had a debate with a well-known atheist in Sweden uh, Mm. last year on the resurrection, and he ended up, actually, after I had presented the historical facts, Uh, that I wanted to to argue uh, and defend. And he accepted all the historical facts, actually. And he also uh, accepted the possibility, the premise, that it's possible that uh, an omnipotent God exists with the Mm. possibility, ability to intervene in history. But then he sort of retracted uh, and said that, and I quote now, what if Jesus was fetched by a Nordic Valkyria to Valhall, the home of the Nordic gods. What if the devil wrote the New Testament? End mm. quote. And, and that's absurd. Mm. And he, he talks about himself as devoted to science and so on. And that's not science. That That's very, very silly speculation. Mm. You know, one of my things about how so many people think today with regards to Christianity is it seems like people were... If they won't believe in Jesus, they'll believe in pretty much anything else to avoid the alternative. Yes. In essence, yes. they have to do that. But it, it seems so incredible that for stories, people will accept and believe anything just to avoid the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. I lectured at a Bible school uh, just the other week about these different pictures of, of Jesus. And it's astonishing what weird explanations people can uh, write books about and actually sell to avoid the real Jesus. And if you're really interested in the truth, you, you carry on the investigation for the truth. And that's what I like so much about Sherlock Holmes, that I can let him do this and skipping all the weird ideas. Mm-hmm. Now, what does Sherlock Holmes do with the existence of God in his book? Well, he, he, he doesn't deal very much with that yeah. question. He only has to have an open possibility that God exists, because mm-hmm. if it is possible that God exists, then it would be possible that he could intervene and rise Jesus mm-hmm. from the dead. Mm-hmm. And that's the same idea that the Jewish people, Jesus' followers, and the, G- the Jewish leadership at the time uh, had to react. Well, if it's possible that God could raise Jesus from the dead. It, it has to be an op- open option. But if it's impossible, then we have to look for another solution. But even this uh, atheist, he agreed that, yeah, sure, it's possible. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I guess it's kind of like what Lee Strobel did in his book, The Case for Christ, where yes. very little is said about God's existence, but pretty much everything is looking at historical evidence. Yeah, right. Yeah, what does does that mean that, oh, he's consistent where he says it would start, you know, 
maybe he's like, I'm suspicious of the miraculous in this case, but we're not going to rule it out ipso facto. Yeah, uh, when when uh, John asks him about, well, have you been a, uh, become a, a religious person now? Well, and, and then Sherlock answers, I'm interested in finding out, did Jesus die on the cross? That's not a religious question. That's a perfectly historical question, mm-hmm. a criminal question, perhaps, when, when he does his normal cases. He wants to find out, is a person dead? Is there a reason uh, behind the death? Is there an intention Then we have a murder? Mm-hmm. Or is it just by accident and so on? So he's very used to these questions about mm-hmm. dead bodies. Mm-hmm. So that's why uh, uh, an investigation like this would be so familiar to Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, that's uh, something that I know Michael Cohen has said several times. Like, for instance, if we looked at the crucifixion, historically we could say Jesus died on the cross yeah. by crucifixion on Golgotha, but we couldn't make the purely historical claim Jesus died for the sins of the world. We could say the early church believed Jesus died for the sins of the world, but when we say why he died, like that, we're kind of going beyond history, as it were. Yeah, uh, and Sherlock's first question is obviously, did Jesus die on the cross? And, and the facts show very, very clearly that yes, he did. Well, let's look at that one for a bit here, since we're not going to be dealing with mythicists, but there are a lot of people who do have these crazy ideas and such. There are several, several Muslims in the world today. All mm. of them, as far as I know, at least the overwhelming majority would hold Jesus did not die on the cross. Yeah. And they build that case on on a historically very strange Mm -hmm. way. Because if you're a Muslim, and actually at this debate that I mentioned, uh, during the Q&A session afterwards, uh, a Muslim rose and, well, he counted me on that particular thing and said that, well, Jesus didn't die on the cross. How do you know that? And so on. And I had to uh, answer him in, in... as a polite way as I could, that we build our case on eyewitnesses. We build our case on uh, historical sources that are very close in time. Mm-hmm. You build your case on a source that is 600 years later by a person in a completely different nation uh, and on a belief that he had received a message from the angel Gabriel mm-hmm. who has said that Allah has said that Jesus did not die on the cross. Mm-hmm. And I would say that is historically <laughs> rather weak. Mm-hmm. So how would you then count of a claim exactly? I mean, whatever ever things could you say besides wherever the New Testament says so? Well, we know very much about ancient crucifixions, and we know that they carried on until uh, the crucified man, as it often was, was dead. And uh, we also have, I, I let Sherlock and John talk about one case that has actually been found, Jehohanan, the son mm-hmm. of Hagkol, who, who they found uh, some 50 years ago in Jerusalem, actually. And uh, what has happened to him? Uh, goes exactly to how the Gospels portray the crucifixion, with the main exception that his legs have been crushed, Mm -hmm. which John mentions that it was not done to Jesus, but that was the regular uh, situation with crucified uh, prisoners. If I remember, when they found his body in the tomb, he even still had the nail from the crucifixion in his foot. 
Yeah, and still a, a little part of the olive tree that he was he was nailed to. Mm-hmm. So, so his remains uh, they they go exactly uh, along with the descriptions we have in the Gospels and in all the other sources about crucifixions. When you were crucified, you died. Mm-hmm. Well, what about the other sources? Do we have any other sources on the crucifixion of Jesus besides the New Testament? No, and and that's one important thing to to mention, and I let Sherlock do that as well. We have other sources outside the New Testament that mention Jesus, but they're they're not as good as historical sources. The reason why these writings are in the New Testament is not the result of some some conspiracy among church leaders. It's because they are the best historical sources, and that's it. That's the sources that New Testament or historical scholars use. They don't use the other sources because they're not they're not as good. It's actually my understanding that a large deal of our information about crucifixion in the ancient world really comes from the New Testament because the New Testament gives the most thorough account of what happened. Yeah, yeah. We have other sources from Josephus and so on who yes. mentions crucifixions briefly. For instance, when he, three of his acquaintances have have been crucified, and he asks them the, the 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 Roman guard to take them down, and he manages to do that. And two of two of them die anyway, even though they were taken down and receive the best care available. Yeah, we do have those other sources about, such as besides Josephus, we have. Tacitus, we have mm. Marabar Serapian, we have Lucian. We have enough that anyone who says Jesus wasn't crucified is really going against the evidence. Yeah, so, so, so we are on strong historical grounds when we say that Jesus was killed uh, through crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. Mm. Yeah, it's one thing to say he was crucified, but you could also raise a question since he brought the whole thing with Josephus, where maybe he was crucified, but he didn't really die on the cross. Yeah. He, he just sort of swooned, and, you know, you had some people who did survive a crucifixion. Apparently, Josephus has at least one of them, so maybe there was a conspiracy to revive Jesus somehow and make everyone think he rose from the dead. Mm. Uh, and, and Sherlock obviously investigates all these loose threads, and he realizes that they, they come to nothing. Uh, Two hundred years ago, people might speculate in that swoon theory, but mm-hmm. it's—and if we may use that word—it's very much dead mm-hmm. in the academic uh, scholarship today. Yeah, it's interesting. The thing that killed it so much was really not a Christian scholar, but a skeptical one, David Strauss. Yeah. who said that if the swoon theory was true, what you have to assume is that Jesus was buried in his tomb, somehow rolled away the stone, and if there were guards, which Strauss was skeptical of, he somehow managed to overcome the guards, go to the house of a disciple, such as Peter and so, and knock on the dead and convince them, hey guys, I'm the Lord of life. Mm. They would not have called him the resurrected Savior, they would have called him a doctor instead. Yeah, so it's psychologically impossible as well, as well as medically and historically. Bart Ehrman, for instance, the other great skeptic, he, he's very much assured that, yes, we know that Jesus died on the cross. So that's yeah. not up for speculation, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... I, I, I still meet people today who do hold to a swoon theory times, and even here, at least in America, I know the Journal of the American Medical Association 
has looked at the case and said, from a medical perspective, Jesus was dead. It's yeah. not a debate anymore. Yeah. So, so the main question is, what happened to Jesus' body afterwards? Yeah. So let's get to that thing about what happened to his body, because you just mentioned Bart Ehrman, where mm. Bart Ehrman now holds that Jesus wasn't buried in a tomb. He was more likely the whole idea of John Dominic Cross, and, you know, just his body was tossed in a common pit, and dogs probably ate him. I mean, I'm not sure if he's gone that far with it, but he doesn't think that barrier is what happened anymore. Mm. And, of course, you can always speculate, and that's what happened to a lot of uh, people who died through crucifixion. But in this case, we have very strong independent evidence of how Jesus was buried. There is a Swedish professor of history called Dick Harrison who has written a book about not very well-known biblical figures. And he writes a chapter about Joseph Arimathea. And as a historian, he considered it to be beyond doubt that Jesus was buried in a known tomb by Joseph of Arimathea because we have four very, very independent sources. Mm. The, the synoptics, they're quite similar to each other in, in other areas. We know that. But in the descriptions of the burial, both them and John, they use very different wordings. So mm. we know uh, from independent sources that Jesus was buried in a known tomb. Yeah. Uh, we've had on the show before Greg Manette. He's actually doing his dissertation on the barrier of Jesus. Okay. And I'm sure you know about Craig Evans. He's mm. been on before talking about his book, Jesus and the Remains of His Day where there's a whole section on the barrier of Jesus. And it really seems like a very powerful case to me. Something yeah. I find extremely lacking about Bart Ehrman's work in this area is that uh, he doesn't really quote a lot of scholars on Jewish burial practices mm. at the time. One noted exception is the Jewish scholar Jody Magnus, who has said that the gospel accounts are entirely consistent with burial practices in the first century. And someone could say, well, maybe he just didn't know about Magnus's work. Well, that's a possibility, except not only does Magnus teach at the very same university that Bart Ehrman teaches at, mm -hmm. but he's the one who hired her to teach at that university, and right. yet there's no interaction with her work in his book on how Jesus became God. It's not there. And if you want to, to uh, say that Jesus did not rise from the dead, you have to come up with some other solution or speculation. Mm -hmm. And one way is, of course, to say that we don't know what happened to Jesus' body, but that's not historically true. We have very strong foundations, says also, non-believing historians. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, one of the other things also that Greg Manette pointed out to me, and, and Craig Evans backed him on this, is that even criminals in peacetime in, in Judea, Palestine, were given a barrier. And the reason was because Romans tended to be somewhat tolerant towards Jewish practices mm. in their own homeland. Jews, for instance, they did not have to sacrifice to the emperor. They could sacrifice for the emperor. 
and insignias that were brought in for the Roman Empire, they were taken out of Judea because the people were going to riot if they weren't if they were in there because it violated their rules on idols and such. <laughs> and so if you had a case with a person who died, criminal or not, and he weren't buried, well, you know, anything could happen. A dog could pick up a bone, or a bird could pick up a piece of flesh or something, and actually take it to the temple area, and that whole place would become defiled at that mm. point. This was the kind of thing they didn't risk. Well, and the strong thing about this case, which, which I let Sherlock Holmes study, is, of course, that we don't have to rely just on, on guessing how big is the, the possibility or the chance that Jesus was buried in a known tomb, uh, according to normal Jewish burial practices. Mm. We, we have such good specific uh, data for, for this particular case, so, so we know very well how Jesus' burial took place. Yeah. Now, someone could give a pushback for and say, where if Jesus was buried in a tomb... <laughs> Why doesn't Paul ever mention it? Yeah, but he does. Uh, he, he does in the Creed in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, he goes through the historical events stating that Jesus died and that he was buried. And when he says he was buried, he, he means that he was buried in a tomb that people knew of. Uh, and we, we may come back to that uh, creedal tradition because it's so important, because it's so early in time. And that's what uh, Sherlock also realizes after a while, that the Gospels are not the historically best sources for the resurrection. Uh, we have to go to First Corinthians 15 and the creed there. Okay, well, let's look at that part that you just mentioned when you said that it would mean that he was buried in a gnome tomb. I mean, can, can you demonstrate that that's what people would have thought when they said that, that Jesus was buried? Uh, yeah, uh, one thing that you could recollect is the story in Matthew, uh, the end of Matthew, where mm. the, the high priests discuss with the God, uh, and that story is only Matthew, so, so we don't have such a historical foundation for it. But the question they talk about is, what happened to Jesus' body? And they, it states that uh, they they spread the rumor that the disciples had stole, stole the body, but that also shows that there was a tomb. It was known among the Jews by the time that that Matthew wrote his gospel, and it also showed that the rumor was that the 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 tomb was empty, and the high priest had absolutely no idea where the body had gone. So uh, th that is the main question that we'll come to in a while: uh, what happened on Easter morning, the Sunday morning, when the tomb was actually empty. That's mm -hmm. the greatest mystery, and that's the one that Sherlock spends most time of solving, obviously. Yeah. So, so to, just to spend a little bit more time on the empty tomb as well, it's also important to note that, uh, as Greg Manette told me, that we have several sources in church history, even with critics, arguing against the resurrection of Jesus, and none of them ever dispute the burial accounts. None yeah. of them. And that's very important. What is not said by critics, uh, there is actually, I, I give some, some small clues and small hints to well-known Sherlock Holmes stories that uh, a Holmes fan would, would recognize. Uh, for instance, uh, from, from Silver Blaze, a story about a racehorse that has disappeared, Holmes 
wakes his his uh, friend's uh, uh, thoughts about the peculiar incident about a dog. And they answer, well, the dog didn't do anything that night. Yes, there you have the peculiar incidents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the same thing with the, with, the, with the critics. None of them mentioned that Jesus would have been buried in a, an unknown tomb, his body would have been lost, or that the tomb would not have been empty. Everybody agree on these facts, so they are most certainly true. Yeah. Something else I think it's important to know is that the burial of Jesus was also a shameful barrier, as far as I'm concerned. It's a kind of barrier that you wouldn't make up. No, because, uh, as you said, it was a shameful situation. They had mm-hmm. hoped that Jesus was the Messiah mm-hmm. who was going to liberate the Jewish people from the Romans. And that's what they hoped for. Uh, they actually asked these questions the, the Thursday night, mm-hmm. some hours before the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. And, and they still believed that Jesus was going to do this. But when he died on the cross, he was a failed prophet. He was a failed Messiah. Everything was lost and that's one important fact that I also let Sherlock evaluate, that the, the disciples had lost all hope when Jesus died. Yeah. Yeah, it's not only that, it's just that, for instance, Jesus is buried in the tomb of someone he's not related to, a stranger. And when you see people going to mourn Jesus, it's not the disciples, it's not his family. It's women followers, and even then, I think they were going kind of like hoping against hope. Well, maybe they'll let us mourn and Mm. such. There would be no real precedent for that, but they were just hoping that something would happen there. That's part of the reason of the shamefulness of the burial of Jesus, that he wasn't treated properly. Now, Joseph, Joseph and Nicodemus, to their credit, they did try. But mm. it's like having a gate, a gushing wound and putting a Band-Aid on it. It just doesn't work. Mm. And that's also, the, the women at the tomb is also part of the, the shamefulness, so to speak, of the situation. Uh, that if we ought to believe in the story of the empty tomb, if that would have been, have been a fabricated story, they would obviously have, have used mailed witnesses. Because if mm. you wanted to... Give a portrayal of something that people would really, really trust. You use male witnesses. Mm-hmm. But we all know that the first witnesses at the empty tomb, they were all women. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's go a bit further. You brought up the creed in First Corinthians 15. Mm-hmm. Why should someone think it's a creed? Let's take the average Bible reader going through. Skeptic Christian doesn't matter. Say, well, I'm looking at this. I don't see anything. Paul says, hey, this is a creed. Why should I think it's a creed? Well, that's because we're not that familiar, most Bible readers, with Greek or Aramaic. Uh, But if if you're familiar with those ancient languages, you can read that it's written in stanzas, it's written in in a rhythm that a creed would be like. So that's why it's not just a a, a pious tale that this is a creed. This is consensus in in modern-day scholarship that this is a creed, probably the oldest Christian creed that was formulated as early as, and and here scholars disagree on on the exact dating, but very, very early, just a few years or perhaps just one year after the cross, it's had exactly this formulation that we can read in 1 Corinthians 15. And that's Mm -hmm. incredible as a historic source. Now, you're talking about 
scholars agreeing on this and such. You mean Christian scholars agree on this, right? Not really. Uh, scholars that, that reject the resurrection also agree that this is a creedal tradition and it's very, very old. And some go as, go as far to say it, it's, it was written down or, or in oral form as early as six months after the crucifixion. It doesn't actually matter exactly how many months uh, after, but we know it's just after the crucifixion. And we know that as his historical truth, not just because we believe in the Bible as the word of God. Yeah, but how can that be? Because, you know, as far as most scholars go, I think, First Corinthians was written between 55 and 60 AD. So how could we tell this material dates from earlier? Well, he says that I told you when I was first in your congregation, that's a few years earlier, I told you what I was given several years earlier, and that was when he was first in Jerusalem and visiting the other disciples a few years after his own conversion on the road to Damascus. Mm. So right there, we are very close to the events in question. And of course, if he heard this creed then, they must have had it before him. So uh, Galatians, first chapter, talks about, well, Paul writes himself about when he first went to Jerusalem, and he spent 15 days with Peter and with James, the brother of Jesus, and discussed this creed. He got it in, in oral form. He got the op uh, opportunity to ask all questions he would like to during these 15 days. Uh, and I know that Bart Ehrman himself, the, the critic, he says that, I would like have would have liked to spend fifteen days with Peter and James. So, so we have very strong historical foundation uh, on this creed. And as it said, when they spent all those times together, we can safely say they probably were not discussing the weather. We're not discussing the weather. Uh, and you mean by that temperature, climate, things like that? Yeah, right, right. Of course, if I was Paul, I was making need to make sure what I had experienced, what I believed, what I preached. And mm -hmm. he says that in, in the first chapter of Galatians, and he also says it in the, the second chapter of Galatians, when he comes back a few years later, and then spends time with the same people, Peter, James, and also John. And yeah. he checks that I needed to make sure that I didn't run in vain, that I didn't preach the wrong gospel. And I ascertained, I made sure to myself that we were in full uh, concordance, uh, we were in full agreement of what we was preaching, where we were preaching. I, I know Gary Habermas, I'm sure you've heard of this from him, he says it's pretty much like Paul had a sort of obsessive-compulsive disorder where he had to keep <laughs> making sure yeah. that what he was teaching. Yeah. You can read that uh, all over the place, actually. What if I have been running in vain? So, so, so he's, he's very sure of checking the facts. Now, something I was thinking about that we've been kind of assuming in all this is, okay, we've got this supposed creed and such, and I'll probably come back to it later, but we're also assuming that the text of the New Testament has been handed down accurately. Isn't that an assumption on our part? Uh, well, no, because we have so many copies of the New Testament documents. We have enormous more amounts of copies than we have that with, well, 
not just almost, but all other ancient texts. Mm -hmm. uh, and we also have them very close in time, for instance, with the uh, Rylands fragment that I let uh, the, the squad from Baker Street go and visit at a library in Manchester, England. Mm -hmm. uh, that is just a few decades after John's original, perhaps mm -hmm. copied from John's original itself. Mm -hmm. So that's fascinating. Yeah. I think when it was discovered, it was said that a whole lot of liberal scholarship had to go up in flames at that point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, so we're very close to the events, especially as it concerns the very day that Jesus was crucified. And that's what it makes it sort of doubly fascinating in this story. When, when Jesus talks to, to Pilate about the truth, mm. that whoever listens Whoever is of the truth will listen to my voice. And that's sort of a red thread that goes through this book as well. Uh, if you're interested in the truth, you can follow the evidence. Mm. Yeah, but, you know, we've been referring to Bart Ehrman so much. And Bart Ehrman is one that's written me, me books like Misquoting Jesus and Jesus Interrupted that mm. very show that, you know, maybe our manuscripts haven't been handed down so well. Uh, well, it, it doesn't matter if the, if they do. As a historian, I, I answer now. Uh, it doesn't matter that much if they differ in a few details. Uh, it, it actually becomes stronger uh, the the historical sources if they differ, because then we know that we have independent sources. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we compare them, we can still feel and see that they are reliable in the details. Yeah, I, I'm talking about not the content themselves but just for text at this point before i go further i do want to say that you're listening to the deeper bars podcast we're here as per you are talking about his book sherlock holmes in the case of the empty tomb but if you're here next week i'm still working on that i didn't get to have someone interview me last week for autism awareness month so i'm thinking in order to make sure i do one show on autism i'll probably see if i can get that done Again, after that, we're going to be taking another break for a couple of weeks because, first off, I've got a high school reunion back in my hometown to go to, and second, my wife and I are moving to a new apartment complex here. I don't know if we have the internet set up yet or not, and I don't want to risk it, so after that, there won't be anything to the 25th. But let's get back to per Europe here. Uh, what I'm wondering is not the content of the text, but, you know, Bart Ehrman has said over and over about how the text has been changed because, you know, you get a story from so-and-so who tells it to so-and-so who tells it to so-and-so who tells it to so-and-so. And the texts are different. I mean, he talks about there's, when we look at the text that we have, there's about 400,000 differences across all of it. I mean, doesn't that give us pause about maybe the, the text just isn't that reliable from a textual standpoint? Well, we could argue that when we talk about the stories in, in Genesis or in Exodus that are, are several thousand years ago, they have been told orally through generations and then written down. But in the case of, of the New Testament stories, uh, the New Testament sources on Jesus' life, death and resurrection, they are so incredibly close to the, to the, the events in question. So there haven't been that time for, for the, the sources and the stories to uh, become disparate in, in different ways. So, so they're very reliable as historical sources, and that's what, what reassures Sherlock Holmes in this story as well. Yeah, to go back to Ehrman again, I mean, 
he does have something positive in his book, Did Jesus Exist? Where he says that pretty much a lot of the atheists that you encounter on the internet who hold the mythicist opinion and such, they tend to approach the text the exact same way for Christians they disagree with approach the text. They say, these are documents of faith, so they must be put in, in a whole different category. The difference is, the Christian says, this is a document of faith, so everything in it has to be absolutely true. And the atheist says, this is a document of faith, so everything in it has to be absolutely false. Yeah, and that's absurd. We don't treat other sources that way. All sources have some kind of tendency. It doesn't make them impossible to use as as historian. I just have to know that that I treat the tendency in the regular way that I do with with source criticism, and that's not a problem here. the 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 questions are factual. Did Jesus die? Was he buried in a known tomb? Was it empty? Did the disciples and others experience Jesus as risen again? Yeah. So now when we return to the creed. Here, there's also statements that Paul uses terms that are not common to him, like the different naming of Peter and reference to the twelve and such, and the rhythm based on the Greek conjunction chi, the word for end. It strikes as this piece of literature. It's not very Pauline in origin. Yes, precisely. So so that's why also liberal scholars, uh, <laughs> rejecting scholars, atheistic mm. scholars agree that mm. this is a very early creed. Mm. We can treat the information in it in different ways, but this is what the earliest Christians believed. Yeah. yeah even when uh, Gary Habermas was on the show, Unbelievable, doing a debate with James Crossley, who's a skeptic, okay. On the resurrection, and Habermas pretty much starts out by listing several of his minimal facts. And Justin Brower, the host, goes to Crossley and says, "You have a problem with those? No, I'm, I grant all of those. That's not a problem." Yeah, exactly. And, that was what happened in my debate with the atheists in Sweden mm-hmm. as well. In fact, Crossley referred to this creed in First Corinthians 15 as a gold mine. I mean. Jeering for any other historical figure out there, if we found, in ancient history that is, if we found a source such as this for that figure, ancient historians would be jumping up and down with glee. Sure. Hmm. <sighs> yeah. So, so that's why, why we are on solid foundation when we discuss what the earliest Christians believe happened that they had actually witnessed, and who were the witnesses to the resurrected, uh, resurrected Jesus. Yeah, but still, that also doesn't mean that the Gospels are absolutely useless as sources. They're still very reliable as sources, aren't they? Oh, yes, oh, yes. Uh, and that's, of course, discussing all the different other details, the different miracles. That's mm. interesting per se, but uh, if, if Christ is risen... All other miracles are possible. I mean, you, you don't start with the smaller miracles and save the resurrection for later. You have to begin with the resurrection, and that's what Paul does in this very chapter. He says that if the resurrection did not happen, everything is useless, but it has happened. Yeah, and I, I think something that we have to address with this, or as some people say, where can we really trust the gospel since, you know, they were written decades after the events took place. Yeah, and that's not a historical problem. 
Uh, I would date the, the Gospels earlier than they're usually uh, dated uh, due to internal historical factors, especially in Acts, but we can take that in another program perhaps. But uh, the details that there was a tomb, there was a, there was a corpse, and that it was resurrected, uh, there we are on solid foundation. I really would like to hear your dating of the yeah. Gospels. Uh, especially, I, I look on uh, at the the ending of Acts. Mm-hmm. If you have read the 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 last chapter of Acts, you see that there are a lot of very practical, very small details. Mm-hmm. Where does the ship uh, come from? What what pictures is on the ship? What date do they they travel? What winds are there, and so on? These mm-hmm. are the kind of details that you write immediately after they have happened. And Paul's journey to Rome, it is somewhere around year 60 uh, AD. Uh, And, of course, it ends before it ends, so to speak. Uh, If Paul was uh, beheaded in 64 AD, uh, the Gospel of... uh, Acts must have been written before that year. And Mm. Acts was was written after the Gospel of Luke, so that must be previous to that one. And Mark was written before Luke. So so I would date Mark somewhere, I don't know exactly, I'm not a paleographist, Um, so I haven't read those uh, sources. But based on the internal factors, within Acts especially, uh, I, I, I would be pretty sure that Acts is written before the death of Paul. And therefore, mm. Luke and and Mark and Matthew would be earlier. Yeah, uh, I had uh, go with a lot. I think there was a guy who wrote a book, maybe like a hundred or two hundred years ago, about the voyage of uh, the ship in Acts twenty-seven. Yeah, and concluded this account had to be written by someone who was an eyewitness to the events, but was not really familiar with the language of water travel at the time. Okay, and that so could she be didn't good. use the, the kind of technical terms that we would normally expect and such. Yeah, uh, and it's obviously that, that Luke, the white eyewitness, was with uh, them on the journey as well, because he goes from they to we when he uh, jumps on the ship. Mm. Now, there are some people, though, who... You say about the whole decades thing, that's not a big deal. But a lot of skeptics say, well, geez, you'd think if an event like this happened, an event of this huge magnitude, someone would have just wrote it down immediately. Uh, Yeah, but that wasn't the calling that Jesus gave his disciples. His disciples' calling was to go out uh, over the whole world and preach the mm-hmm. message that Jesus was resurrected to, mm-hmm. to all nations. Uh, and then he would return. And they didn't know when he was going to return. We don't know when he's going to return. But after a while, they realized that he did not return during their lifetime. So they had to write it down. And that's not a problem. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the main, the, the best source we have is the oral source found in First Corinthians 15. And that's mm-hmm. not decades later. That's months later. Yeah. Well, I tell people when they ask this kind of objection and say, look, here's the thing. You're live, you're assuming a sort of modern mindset after the Gutenberg printing press where things are written down immediately. Mm. Let's suppose you live in the ancient world. You have this message of Jesus. You want to get it out. You have two ways you can do it. 
You can do it with oral communication, or you can do it with written communication. Mm. Oral communication is free. It's done instantly. It reaches everyone who knows the language, and it and it's quick. It's actually pretty reliable, too, because people had much better memories back then. Those are the benefits of oral communication. Yeah. Or you can go with a written document. Now, if you write it, it costs money to write. It can cost a lot of money. Something like writing Galatians, for instance, would have cost an equivalent of $500 today, by our standards. It's slower, because you have to write it all down. And it only reaches people who can read, or those who have it read to them. Hmm. Which could be about, say, those who could read, let's be generous and say that's 10% of the population. Now, if you have those two ways of reaching people in that time, which one are you going to go with? It's pretty easy to decide. Yeah. And the strength with oral sources is also that you could double-check them. And that's what Paul mm-hmm. says that he, he, he does. I yep. went to them, and I checked what I had heard. Is that the exact same information that you had given me? Uh, and that's why you could transmit the oral information to next person when you had double-checked that you known it by word mm-hmm. and by heart. Yeah, that, that was a big benefit. That's why Papias, for instance said he wanted to get a living voice rather than documents. That way he could go and he could question someone and say, Where were you here? What did you hear? And things of that sort. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, let's go on then to the next thing. Was the tomb found empty on Sunday morning? Because mm. that, that's something that's also disputed by some scholars. Eh? Where the tomb wasn't found empty... Mm. Uh, and we've already mentioned the female witnesses, which is a very strong mm. point. As uh, mm. We've talked about the creed in 1 Corinthians. What's, mm. what's the common feature with the, those witnesses to the resurrection? They're all male, because yeah. they use the sources or, or the witnesses that people would find most credible. Uh, so, so nobody would be uh, so stupid to come up with a fake story and using female witnesses, which is also the case when when they will return to the disciples and state that the tomb was empty and that Jesus may have been resurrected. They don't believe in them. Mm -hmm. So so that's what uh, uh, delights Sherlock Holmes in in my story as well, that he, he sees that the disciples, the women, they all act very rational. Uh, they mm-hmm. they don't draw the conclusion when the, the tomb is empty. Wow, Jesus must be alive. Obviously not. Yeah. Nobody would draw that conclusion. But it's very certain that the tomb was actually empty, and we have several other reasons to 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 be sure of that. Yeah, I find that usually when people come up, I mean, we haven't got to the final leg of things yet, the, the appearances. We'll get there eventually, but I find that usually when people come up with these counter-explanations, what really happen. They might be good at explaining one piece of data, but they don't usually work with explaining all of the data. Yes. Uh, And that's what goes in the Sherlock Holmes method as well. Gathering all the facts and seeing after that what pattern explains these facts best. If you want to have a naturalistic explanation of, of all these events, you need to come up with a enormously 
large web of explanations and they don't actually fit together. Mm. Yeah, something also that I think lends credence more to the empty tomb is that if a tomb had not been empty, I really don't see any way the Christian movement could have got started at Obviously. all. No, uh, and that's the fascinating thing about the Christian message and the Christian religion. It's very different from all other world religions. Uh, if mm. you if you compare to Buddhism, uh, truth and his history is not in- interesting at all. You just search your your inner self for truth. Islam mm. is the same thing. You, you're you're not supposed to investigate things. You're just supposed to believe in what Muhammad said that uh, the, the the angel Gabriel gave what kind of message he gave from Allah. But mm. Christianity is different. Uh, the, the the earliest listeners to the gospel, they were allowed to ask the witnesses, go check the facts, go go search the, the tomb. If you would find a half-rotten skeleton there, everything is over. Goodbye. Mm. Yeah. Not only that, but the message also began in Jerusalem itself, the very place where if... There was any spot where Christianity could have been easily disproven, mm. it would have been right there in Jerusalem. Obviously. So, so that's what's fascinating about the, the, this story and what Sherlock finds out uh, as well. You, you have the facts and, and, and the historical data and the circumstances that are actually possible and were possible to investigate. They were possible to verify and to falsify. Mm-hmm. And that's why even a Jewish scholar like Geisha Vermes, who didn't believe in resurrection, resurrection Jesus, does say, for women found an empty tomb that Sunday morning. Yeah, and, and I think it was Kelsus who also who said that we, we can't believe Christianity because it, it has female witnesses. Uh, but he, he doesn't disagree with the empty tomb, uh, but he, he disagrees with female witnesses. And that's why they are, as a historian, it gets the facts stronger foundation. So let's move on then to the appearances mm-hmm. claim. Because this, I think, is probably the biggest one. First off, now, I have to be very clear of how I'm wording this, because, you know, if you go and say, did the disciples see the risen Jesus, that's kind of begging the question such. But were the disciples convinced that Jesus had appeared to them alive after the crucifixion? Well, we had to figure what situation they were in. Mm-hmm. I would have been, I, I, I guess all people would have been completely devastated. They had invested their lives, their time, their, their resources, everything in this man that they hoped were, uh, was the Messiah. And it turned out mm. that he wasn't. Everything mm. was lost. They had to go back home or kill themselves like Judas did or, or, or whatever. All hope was lost. So they weren't expecting anything. <clears throat> so the only reason why they soon after this got out and with the risk of their lives preached that they had met Jesus alive was that they were absolutely, absolutely sure that they had. They had double-checked, triple-checked everything that they could. Otherwise, they wouldn't have spread that message. Yeah, one other condition I think they could have been in. Sounds we have at the disciples who have been depressed and downfall. I think there's also a possibility they could have been angry. 
as well. Mm. Not necessarily mm. at the Jewish leaders, but thing. This guy turned out to be a charlatan, mm. and I gave my life to him, to serving him. And about how much they had been shamed because of that, they they could have been angry. Yeah, you sort of read well. that between the lines as well. When when the women come back and talk about the resurrection, they they reject them for for, for having gossip or idle talk or whatever translation you read in English. Mm. So they seem a bit angry, actually. So, but yet somehow something convinces them that they have seen the risen Jesus. Mm. Now, is this opinion also shared by even non-Christian scholars? Yeah, that is the fascinating thing, that a couple of decades ago, that wasn't really the case. Uh, But now, uh, after having studied the sources better, Mm. uh, they more or less all agree that they met the risen Christ. What, what that meant, what, what the reality was behind these, these experiences, they debate the different scholars. But there is consensus about this as well. They actually experienced meeting Jesus as risen. Yeah. I believe that's pretty much exactly what E.P. Sanders said, that the, that the experiences happen, we can all agree on. We can debate what led to them. Mm. Uh, and I know Bart Ehrman, he upholds that there were appearances, and Gerd Ludemann says the appearances are indisputable. Yes. And we have to remember that Gerd Ludemann is an atheist. Yes, he is. Yeah. Now, I'd like to remind everyone at this point, though, that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do is supported by people like you. Ordinary people who love Jesus and have a great appreciation for Christian apologetics and want to see a ministry like this one thrive. And we could really use your support here more and more. So I want to urge you, please go to deeperwatersapologetics.com, which is my website, and there's a link on the side to help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. When you click on there, you get taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus. Is my website working correctly? Uh, did I actually link someone to another site? No, everything's in fine working order. The Ministry of Risen Jesus is the ministry of Mike and Debbie Lacona, and they are my in-laws. And so they hand over the donations for us, since Debbie specializes in clergy taxes and nonprofits and things of that sort. So you make your donation to them through Risen Jesus and then you get in touch with me or Allie or Mike or Debbie and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. They will make sure we get that donation and it will be tax deductible. You can also uh, buy ebooks. One that I've written is A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian. Once that I've co-written, Defining Inerrancy, Contextualizing Inerrancy, Christian Answers to Risk Generation's Questions, God and Natural Disasters, Debate with an Atheist, and I'd especially like to emphasize at this point, Groundless. That was one that I co-wrote looking at Dan Barker since I debated him last month on March 18th, and the debate is available up on YouTube if you want to go look and see how I did and such, you want to see a little bit about the man behind the mic, if I'm just someone who interviews or if I 
do make the arguments on my own and such, and I, I hope you'll find that the latter is true. And then another way you can support us is, well, per I know how it is over here in America and such, over in Sweden, you're a married man. Mm. Do the women, do the women still like their jewelry over there? Sorry, do the women? Do the women over there, just like you in America, like their jewelry? <laughs> I guess so. Well, we actually have someone who sells jewelry for us, for premier jewelers. And if you purchase something through them, through Lena Cluster over there, Whatever you purchase, 25% of that goes to Deeper Waters. And guys, we've got even, this doesn't even have to be for your girlfriend or your wife. We've got Mother's Day coming up. Your mother would probably like something special. So you can go and you can make a purchase of jewelry for that special woman. And if this is for your wife here, the one you're, you promised your love to and such, Guys, you know my piece of advice that I always give you in this regards. You can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up for that screw-up that you recently did with her. Or, you can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up for that screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. And if you can't do any of these, go on iTunes and leave a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. You guys have no idea how much it means to me when I see one of those show up. Now, Per, do you have an organization or a charity that you'd like to see people donate to? Yeah, we have the Clapham Institute, which is Sweden's leading Christian think tank. Actually, as we we are the most, arguably the most secular nation on, on, on earth, uh, the, the vision was to found a Christian think tank. There wasn't one when we began 11 years ago. Uh, we have been been growing in our work and in, in our impact, and we are a volunteer-based organization. We don't have any state funds or any uh, such, so we would of- obviously appreciate any kind of help and resources from America and other places around the world for, for this work. And we have our website, clapham-instituted.se. ClapHamInstituted.se, and we have a, a, a page there with information in English as well, so so you can read about our, our work and read about how you can support it, support our work in different ways. And that's uh, Clapham, that's C-R-A-P-H-A-M, yeah. right? Clapham, like the the London suburb, and Instituted, uh, Institute with a T in the end. Dot S-E. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get back to the appearances tradition. Now, something that we have to ask is, you know, maybe these were all just people individually having experiences. I mean, doesn't that make sense? Uh, Yeah, sure. You can have different kinds of experience. You're talking about the the sort of hallucination hypotheses spread around. Yes. And of course, yeah, you can have different kinds of weird experiences when when you're in difficult situations. But these are very different groups of people, individuals, Mm -hmm. groups, men, women, outside, inside, daytime, morning, evening, not night, not in darkness, but uh, 
in very different situations. And you don't experience hallucinations, all these people, all these groups in all these different circumstances, indoors, outdoors, and so on. Mm-hmm. So we can mm-hmm. actually rely very, very heavily on what they experienced. Yeah. Well, how do we know it was in all these places and at all these times? Because we have such early testimonies and, and nobody uh, questions. Well, a very, very few people question it, but the vast majority of scholars say that this is what they experienced, and these were the people who experienced them. We're not in some faraway remote corner of history that we don't know who's who or where's where. We, we know who these people were, and we know where they experienced them. So we have solid foundation for this, actually. Okay, I'm going to go one by one giving three different counters I usually hear people give to even group appearances mm-hmm. and such. There's actually one more I just thought we could use. But let's start with one that comes to my mind immediately. Marian apparitions. That you have these cases where so many people will say, they saw the Virgin Mary. Where do we have to believe all those appearances too, since those take place to a large group of people? Well, I would say that the, these experiences was it they, they encountered some kind of of a heavenly situation, right? You don't have the Marian apparitions. Yeah, they, they saw some 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 uh, some things going on in the sky, and they interpreted to be Mary, right? It would depend on the hallucination, on the account. I'm not saying hallucination yeah. account, that's begging the but, question. But it would de- depend on the account. In that case... But some people are sure Mary did appear to Yeah, them. but in that, that case, the, the group experience, so to speak, I get the impression that they saw something with their visual eyes that they interpreted to be something else. That, that's not a hallucination, that's an illusion. They saw something mm-hmm. and they understood it to be something particular. In this case... Uh, it's not a matter of illusion. It would be a complete hallucination. They don't experience anything. They don't meet anyone. And they interpret it to be meetings with Jesus, him saying things, him doing things. So so they're, they're very vivid description of, of things happening. Okay. What about alien sightings? Because you have several people who say that, you know, you have these group sightings of UFOs, and heck, some people claim to be abducted by aliens, and most of us don't believe those stories, so why should we believe a resurrection story? Uh, And the thing there is that that these people, they don't have any data to support their claims with. In this case, we have the empty tomb. Even if people had hallucinated all this in in all these Mm -hmm. different circumstances, which isn't probable, uh, we still have to solve the problem of the empty tomb. Uh, we haven't solved that problem still. Uh, and one thing uh, that I need to, to add is I have a very practical remembrance of, of hallucination uh, discussion, actually. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned where we were uh, in, during Easter with a family. I don't remember uh, that. We, we were in northern Germany in, at a holiday resort, and we were there three years ago as well at this very holiday resort and there we had an accident where our daughter who was seven at the time she fell badly and broke her arm Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. she had to be rushed with ambulance to first one hospital which couldn't help her enough it was a bad bad injury so they had to to drive her with another ambulance to to lubeck uh, the, the the world's 
strongest town some 500 years ago. And there they could do surgery on her arm. And then they gave her anesthetics and, and uh, drugs that made her hallucinate before she lost consciousness. So she started talking to, to my wife, who was with her. Mum, there are balloons up in the ceiling. And, and mum, there, there's a king and a queen. And then she lost consciousness. Mm. And then I get, when, when, when she woke up again, and if I had asked her questions, uh, uh, well, Linnea, as she, she's called, what, what did you do with the balloons? What color were they? Did the king and the queen say something? That's, that's very interesting that you saw these things. She would have obviously answered, Daddy, there were no balloons. There was no king, no queen. I was mm. hallucinating. And that's what people do when they experience hallucinatory experiences. They know afterwards that it wasn't a, a real experience. I wasn't under the influence of, of, of a tiredom of, of, of drugs or anything like that. So, so that's why we can trust the disciples' stories. They believed in them all to the point of death. If there had been any the hesitation at all, someone or several of them should have backed down, and nobody did. Yeah, you can even know, I have a similar kind of experience where mine is just auditory. You can even know that things are going on during mm. the time that you experience them. Shortly after we got married, I had had my gallbladder taken okay. out, which required some good surgery. And some people from the church were there. My pastor at the time was back there, along with my wife and they were getting ready to prep me for surgery, and they gave me the medication meant to knock me out. And so I knew what could be coming, but part of me wouldn't make sure, and so I just said at one point, does anyone else hear singing, or is it just me? <laughs> and the pastor looked at my wife and said, yeah, he's about to go. Yeah. And so, yeah, you. when I have it going on, I was suspicious that it was a real experience, because I knew what those kinds of things do to you, so I wanted to make sure. That, I think, is indeed something very important to state. You know, there are people, though, who do after these events, such as alien abductions and such, they're still absolutely convinced that they really were abducted by aliens. Yeah, uh, but they still don't have anything to support it with. They only have individual right. stories. In, in the, mm -hmm. uh, the events surrounding Jesus' death and burial, we have all these other pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that fit together. We have mm -hmm. the people, we have the death, we have the tomb. Everything goes together, and everything goes together also with the witnesses. Okay, well, let's go with one other case, then, and... This might not be one you're as familiar with in Sweden, as it certainly is an issue over here in America, and that's Mormonism. Yes, right. That in Mormonism, you know, there's always claims of all these people who did say, well, we saw the golden plates of Joseph Smith. How is that different from Jesus? And I actually let uh, Sherlock discuss those things, or I, I think I let the priest uh, explain it to, uh, to, uh, to Sherlock, that there is a difference between Mormonism, where you just have to believe what Joseph Smith says about these golden plates, mm. and there were people who claimed to have seen them, but, and this is a very striking difference to the disciples mm -hmm. none of the disciples left their faith they kept to it all the to the point of death but the majority of the people who claimed to have seen the plates they left mormonism 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say that on the Shakespeare Parsers Dying, we did have Sean McDowell on our show who did his dissertation on the fate of the Apostles. Yes. And we don't have the best information for all of the Apostles mm-hmm. doing this, but we also don't have any record of any of them ever recanting. Yes, and we would be sure that, that the critics of Christianity would have jumped on that immediately mm-hmm. if anyone had recanted mm-hmm. or, or taken back what they, what they stated. They all kept it during the whole life. Yeah. yeah. Now, what we can also ask about is some people look and say, well, maybe this was a case of cognitive dissonance. Which is always amusing to me when internet atheists try to act like they're psychologists mm. and such. But first off, what is cognitive dissonance? Mm. And second, why does it not work here? Yeah, and we're still back to, to also the what if. You can always mm. come up with more or, or more silly uh, counter explanations to everything in history, but that would make it completely impossible to do any historical research if you talk about the assassination of John F. John F. Kennedy or, or any other famous person. You can come up with the, the silliest explanations, but nobody would listen to them. Uh, we need to listen to those that actually have something to support them, and, and we do that in this case. Okay. So, but what is cognitive dissonance exactly? Uh, yeah, I haven't discussed that very much in this this story. Give the example that you wish to give, and then we can discuss it. Well, some people say that cognitive dissonance is that when you have an event that you expect to happen, and it doesn't, and then you come up with all these explanations to avoid dealing with the misplaced reality, as it were, the case, for instance, the main one in the book, Leon Festinger's book, When Prophecy Fails, was all these people expecting these aliens to come and sort of whisk them away and such, and when it never happened, they said, oh, well, they never came because we all showed true devotion, yeah. so they decided to, to not come here. And so people say, well, in order to avoid psychological distress, you come up with some sort of explanation to save face, yeah, sure. as it were. Uh, the, the question here is obviously that the, the, the expectation among Jesus' followers was that everything was lost, and they either had to kill themselves or go home and sort of give up the hope. Uh, we, we get other examples in Acts that Gamaliel, the Jewish leader, mentions. We have Tevdas, mm-hmm. we have uh, Judas, the, the Galilean, who both were killed they were messianic leaders, and their movements died immediately after them. So everybody expected nothing to happen. Uh, and that's, of course, when we talk about Jesus' followers. The case is even worse when we talk about James, the brother of Jesus, who was a skeptic earlier and did not believe that his brother was the Messiah. And obviously even more for Paul, who was an, an enemy. He was very much not in the state of believing things that went contrary to all to all he believed in and worked for. Mm-hmm. And yet both of them became committed Christians. I, I often tell people when you talk about James, for instance, okay, imagine, what would it take for you to be convinced that, say, your brother or sister was yeah, God? Exactly. I, I, I've got a sister. I love my sister. I think the world of her. 
But if you told me my sister was God, I'd think, okay, you're seriously delusional at that point. And if she started saying the same thing, I'd be saying she needs to go to a mental hospital. So, so you would need something very, very extraordinary to change your mind about that. And I would do the same thing about my brother, and all people would. Uh, and that would be the same thing about James. Something happened to him uh, early on that made him change his mind and be the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Something happened to Peter, who had lost everything when he had denied the Lord uh, three times, and he had lost everything. And sometime during Easter Sunday, he met Jesus. We read about it in the, the Creed in 1 Corinthians 15. We read about other mentioning it in, in Luke, but we don't read about the very encounter, but it must have happened. Yeah, there was a meme you can find going around that the internet has got the Apostle Paul sitting at the desk, kind of the Stephen Crowder desk, where he has a sign that says, going to Damascus to persecute the Christians, changed my mind. Then in the bottom picture, it's got, it's got Paul there with an image of Jesus and it says, I changed my mind. Mm-hmm. It would take something very powerful for Paul to change yeah. his mind. But, you know, some people say, Maybe Paul had been persecuting Christians and saw them living good, righteous lives, and he just felt really guilty. And that guilt led to his having a psychotic experience of sorts, where he was convinced he'd saw Jesus appear to him, and he changed yeah. everything. And then we're still back to, what if? Everybody can speculate on anything, but you need to have some support when you when you portray and, and you explain these suggestions. People don't. They don't have any support at all. In Sweden, actually, we had a female physician who wrote a book about, and she had it published, she had it sold, and, and she had media on it, uh, stating that, well, Jesus disappeared. He didn't die. And a few years later, he appeared again, but he had changed name, and he was now Paul of Tarsus. And it's ridiculous. It, it has oh absolutely gosh. no historical support at all. And that's why she wrote it as a physician. She's not a historian. She made these things up. But as we said before, in order to avoid Jesus as the Messiah, as the conqueror of death, people have, will need to come up with some other solution. And they tend to be very disconnected from facts. We believe in a Jesus who is risen, and we rest this faith on facts. Well, first off, I wouldn't mind if you'd message me the name of that book or the offer at least yeah. sometime, because that looks like something I'd be absolutely hysterical <laughs> to yeah. read. I have it here it's- in my bookcase behind me. Liana Einhorn. Liana Einhorn. E-I-N-H-O-R-N. Mm. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to look that one up here yeah. sometime. Uh, also, one of the problems I have with this whole thing is it, it assumes a sort of modern context where there's individualism and we are experience guilt. But that's not the way the ancient world worked. They were much more shame-focused than guilt-focused. Yeah, sure. And, and the problem is, of course, that you, you begin with a solution that you had come up with, and then you try to ad- adopt uh, all, uh, and adapt all, all the facts to fit with this uh, theory. And, and, and it's not the way we do uh, historical research. 
uh, when we confess and preach the, the, the resurrection of Jesus, we can see that the puzzle actually fits together. Mm. Yeah, something also is that N.T. Wright has said that if all you had were just just um, appearances, that would not convince the disciples that Jesus had risen. They would think more likely that he was in Abraham's bosom or something of that sort. And that's what the the impression that that is described in the Gospels as well. When they saw Jesus, they thought that, well, this is some kind of ghost, some kind of spirit. I I saw him die. So they had to, to check he does speak. I can touch him. I can feel him. I can watch him eat. They needed to, to, to check these things because they were normal people with rational minds. Yeah, and that's something else that comes up first. Like you said, in the case of your daughter, if these were hallucinations, most of us, I mean, I'm married to a woman I love very much who sometimes struggles with hallucinations mm. at times. And when she has hallucinations, afterwards... She can still be very scared about what happened, but she knows there wasn't anything objectively there. It was a hallucination yes. entirely. And it may be tough personally and, and psychologically when you experience those things, but just as you say, you know afterwards what is true and what is not. Yeah. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> What about, though, if someone still says after all this, well, you know, my whole problem is still this involves a miracle, and miracles just don't happen. Yeah, but that's more or less the same explanation that the disciples would have given. They saw that Jesus was dead. They know that people who are dead remain dead. So we're on the same square here. We, as... Uh, investigators 2,000 years after, and the disciples at that very time. We know, and they knew, that a person dead remains dead, unless something extraordinary happens. And we have these uh, experiences from the disciples, and from James, and from Paul, who all agree that they had met Christ as risen, so we can believe in them. Yeah, I find it so amazing when I meet people today who argue against Christianity and want to do it from a much more scientific mindset, as it were, nothing opposed to science, but they go and say things like, where today we know uh, dead people stay dead and virgins don't give birth and things that sort of thing. I hate to burst your bubble, but everyone back in the ancient world knew those things too. That's why they buried their dead. Because they weren't coming back. And that's perhaps the the toughest bit. The toughest bit here is not the factual situation or the solution. It is how it affects us personally. And that's, of course, what what an investigative investigative, uh, detective like Sherlock Holmes would have to face at the end of the day Mm -hmm. when he has all the facts on the table and he knows where the arrows point. What do you do with this? And that's the the thing I want to send to all readers for open searchers, so to speak, uh, who who search for the truth. If the truth appears to be another one that you have believed, if the universe may be an open system where God can intervene and raise uh, Jesus from the dead, how would that affect my life? Am I prepared to follow the evidence where it leads? Yeah. 
Now, I will give you, well, first off, when you said about how Sherlock Holmes comes, I think it's important to say that I'm not going to tell anyone what happens with Sherlock Holmes at the end, if he accepts the resurrection mm. of Jesus or if he just decides to close the book. Such, you all need to read that for yourselves yeah. as well. But like I said, it's an excellent book. But what if someone says, well, you know, yeah, the disciples might have been skeptical and such, but they also were Jews, and Jews believed in a God who could do miracles and had done miracles in history. We today don't share that same worldview. Well, some people don't share that worldview. But they, they share the same worldview that when a person is dead, he remains dead. They, they knew that God would perhaps sometime in the end of days resurrect everybody. But that's what was not the case in question for, for in history at that time. Everything was lost and they knew it. So the only thing that could have created an, a new hope was that they actually met Jesus as risen. And that's what's particular about the Christian faith. We, we know how it began and we know how the situation was. Friday, everything was lost. Saturday, everything was lost. Sunday, we had a movement that was not going to be stopped any time in history. And some of that goes against the cognitive dissonance hypothesis. Is with that hypothesis... Usually the group didn't increase in size beyond the initial group it was. It was minimal. But when Christianity spread, it spread very well for a new belief system at its time. And it even spread amongst non-Jews, yeah. the Gentiles. And there were many aspects of Christianity that Gentiles would have objected to. A, a crucified Messiah, the vigorous lifestyle ethic, especially the sexual ethic that was yeah. commanded. The idea even of bodily resurrection would have been something abhorrent mm. to them. And, and remember what Paul says in, after reciting the whole creed in First Corinthians 15. He says that out of these 500 that met Jesus at, at one time, most of them are still alive. You can question them. So, so Christianity is mm -hmm. a faith that is verifiable. It was falsifiable mm -hmm. also if it had not been true. Yeah. Do you think it would have been possible for these people to go and find these people and question them? I mean, after all, your average citizen probably want to say, okay, well, let's pack up the family and go on a vacation then and find these people. Yeah, but you could start with Paul. Uh, they knew Paul. They had they had met Paul, and he he had met all the other eyewitnesses. So you had a chain of eyewitnesses, an unbroken chain of eyewitnesses, which is very strong mm -hmm. historically speaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say in some cases these people would have been probably known to the Christian community. I mean, they would can be like for, for sort of celebrities within the yes, movement sure. who would be able to verify the claims and such. And you didn't have to have whole individual families going on their own. A church could say, okay, we're going to send such and such to go and investigate this mm. matter. And that's what happened. A, a very wealthy person could send a servant of his with some money to to uh, back his, his travels and such. Say, okay, go to Judea, ask around, find out what you can about this. And they would have been able yeah. to do so. And, and you can't... Uh require people to always have direct access to eyewitnesses to say that we know that this has happened. In history, we almost never have direct access to eyewitnesses, but we still believe things to have happened when we have credible sources. 
That's what we do when we study mm -hmm. history all the time. And in this case, we have a tremendous amount of, of good sources. Mm -hmm. So let's ask um, another question with regards to the resurrection here. Matvis, Artmany, at the end of the day, what difference does it make? Well, it, it makes all the difference in the world. If Christ is not risen, we're still in our sins. We're still, we still, still don't have a hope beyond death. But if Christ is risen, it is, as Jesus himself says to the Apostle John on Patmos on the island in the beginning of Revelation, that I have the keys to the death and to Hades. I have a new future. I have a hope for the future. Death is not the end. It changes history. It changes humanity. It changes everything forever. Yeah. I, I think also we can say it really answers one of the biggest atheist objections out there, the problem of mm. evil. There was a time that Barry, Ravi Zacharias talked about a time that Barry Graham was visiting a German official after World War II. And the German official was looking out at the ruins of Germany after that massive war and said to Mr. Graham, said, Mr. Graham, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And Barry Graham was, of course, a bit surprised. I mean, he's an evangelist. Of course he does. Well, that, that was the case back then, based on your stories that you share with us today. Maybe that's not always the case. But Barry Graham said, of course I do. And the German official looks out the window again and says, you know, apart from the resurrection of Jesus, I really know of no other hope for mankind. Mm -hmm. That if a resurrection is true, in essence, we have the problem of evil answered. That God has dealt with evil in the resurrection of Jesus and will deal with evil in a future mm. way. Uh, and there are different levels, obviously, of how to treat the problem of evil. Uh, we, we have the counseling mm. level, where we listen to people, and we meet them, and we cry with each other, and we try to help each other through, through the hardships of life. But then, of course, we also have the metaphysical level, where we have to, to discuss what is evil, how has God related to evil, and we know that God has himself experienced the worst evil that the, the humanity can produce, and he let himself do it because of love for us. And as we're going to Easter services, like I said, we had one last week here, and we're having another one tomorrow for the Orthodox minute, which... Yeah, my wife and I are, are kind of have mixed, mixed experiences because the service starts at mm. midnight. And we're probably not going to be home until around 2.30 or so okay. in the morning. So we're not sure how much we're really going to be able to handle that and such. But it comes back again to the, the verse that meant so much to Ravi Zacharias when he became a Christian. And that's when, because I live, you will live yeah. also. And because Jesus rose from the dead, we are where rise from the dead in Christ. I, I, I think it's incredibly short-sighted if we look and say, Jesus rose from the dead. The impact of that is that shows Christianity is true. It really needs to be a whole lot yeah. more than that. And it shows also the nature of who God is. He's not a remote divinity mm -hmm. like Allah is portrayed in Islam. He is a God who shares all our experiences, who cries in Gethsemane, mm -hmm. who cries with us, who cries before Lazarus' tomb, 
He cries over Jerusalem, how people have gone astray and missed the point of their lives. But with Jesus and with his resurrection, we have hope both for the future, but also for our lives here and now. Yeah, and also, one other aspect I, I brought up when I was discussing this at my church for Easter, when I taught a class on resurrection, is that uh, this had, there had been something that came up recently in a marriage group that I was part of. Where it was so you said, okay, we've got a, the lady who runs the group said, okay, we've got an anonymous question from a wife here and says, guys, why do you like whatever parts it is you like of a woman's body and such? And one answer I gave right off is because of a resurrection. Because the resurrection tells us that the bodies matter. A human body is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. God created bodies, and he wanted us to be embodied creatures. And if we're going around and saying, well, our bodies really don't matter, and that that's something low to, be, to desire the female body even, for instance, we're not being Christian. We're being Gnostics at yeah. that point. So, so, so the resurrection, it applies on several levels. And uh, the, mm-hmm. the level then that I, to sum, sum it up, uh, that, that I let Sherlock Holmes follow here, are the factual level, the evidence level, the mm-hmm. historical level. And that's what he's so devoted to. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's prepared to follow to the end. Well, I don't think there's really enough time to get into another question here. So I'm going to start wrapping it up for the book is Sherlock, The Case of the Empty Tomb. If you want to buy it, the Kindle version right now is the cheapest way. It's $9.99. Paperback is 19 Hardcover is $35.37. That's on Amazon. Now, Per, do you have a, a, a website, a blog, an email, a way people can get in touch with you, you if they want to find yeah, out more? I, I have built a, an English website, peruet.com, P-E-R-E-W-E-R-T.com, uh, and I'm on Facebook. And in, in a recent interview, the interviewer uh, said that you could visit my Twitter, and my Twitter has been asleep for, for 10 years, I only started as a, as a mm. so, so, sociological experiment, but I revived it mm. in the, the name of the resurrection. So on Twitter as well. Mm-hmm. And the book is published on WIP and Stock Publishing Company in Oregon. Okay. Okay. Um, do you have uh, any final thoughts you'd like to leave for a deeper Barter's audience? I'm thankful to Jesus for, for having been been resurrected to life again both for me and for everybody in the world and i'm so thankful to mm-hmm. to be able to spread this joyous message across the world and i hope to be able to give life and give jesus's life to people through this book well we are certainly thankful for our forces for christianity at work in sweden yeah. he said a very secular state we are so appreciative of that and Per, I'd like to thank you for coming on and hopefully we'll see you back here again. Thank you very much for having me. God bless you. And next week, well, we're still working on that. But for now, I'm Nick Peters and I'm signing off.